Good morning. How's everyone today? Good. This weather is outstanding, isn't it? I mean, it's sunny, it's 60 degrees outside. Come on, work with me here. I'm trying to fool these people in Florida, so... No, it's not warm there either, but that's okay. You know, it's, uh, it's really pretty interesting that some of you have now started to make me aware of the days that you've been celebrating. Yeah, got a, got a couple of messages this week that there were some big days on some people's calendars. Like the 25th, apparently that was National Plan Your Vacation Day. Who knew? Um, and then, of course, the 27th, I missed this one, German Chocolate Day. German Chocolate Cake Day. Yeah. Hopefully you had a piece of German Chocolate Cake. If you didn't, uh, you could probably have one today. But, you know, I like to share little snippets about me um, from time to time. And as many of you know, I spent about 30 years of my life working in the healthcare industry. 15 years on the clinical side, about 15 years in industry. And, I, you know, I started my career way back when, way back when, and yes, I can remember back that far, but I started as a radiologic technologist. And I remember when I was doing all the training to work in that field, there was a lot of studying, as there are for many fields. But, you know, you began in the classroom with things like biology, chemistry, physics, one of my favorites, and I'm serious about that, but the basic sciences, then you moved on to anatomy and physiology and medical terminology, and eventually you learned about procedures, and radiologic technology is a very procedure-oriented field, all the way from the basics of x-rays, which is where I started, all the way to complex, minimally invasive procedures, which is what I spent the last 20 or so years on myself. But you know, the move from the classroom to the procedure room, you didn't just jump in. There were steps along the way. And once you completed all these general classes, the basic sciences and things like that, things became a little bit more specific to the field. First came competencies. And competencies were like mock procedures that you would do in a classroom, usually involving one of your fellow students. And then the instructors would grade you on your performance. And once you passed your competencies, then and only then did you move into the clinical setting. You started working in the hospital. And even in the hospital, you were on a really, really short leash. See, until you proved your abilities, there was always a preceptor. There was always a trainer right there. In fact, you spent most of your time watching in the beginning before you ever had the chance to touch a patient. So you'd work under the tutelage of this preceptor, and eventually, when you were able to demonstrate that you kind of knew a little bit about what you were doing, you were on your own. And that can be an incredible source of anxiety. See, 
you're, you're used to having your teacher around, right? You're used to having that backup. You're used to having that support, someone that you can ask questions, someone that can direct you in the way to go. But see, they eventually leave you on your own because presumably their work is done. And it's up to you then to continue the work that they began. See, they know that it's better that they leave you on your own. Because that's really how you learn. I found early on that I learned best by doing. It was a little bit scary, but that's how I learned best. So have you ever found yourself in a situation similar to that? Maybe you're doing some training for a new job, you know, or maybe it's a new responsibility within your job, or maybe you're working on something for school, and you're used to having that safety net. You're used to having that trainer or teacher standing by your side the whole way. And then one day they decide that it's time for you to fly on your own, and they let you go because they know it's better that they leave you. Now, does that sound at all familiar? It should, because that's how we've been describing the relationship between Jesus and his disciples. Jesus spent three years teaching and modeling behavior for his students, his disciples, and eventually, eventually he knew that it was best that he leave them and continue the work that he began. See, his work on earth was finished. The disciples' work was just beginning. Well, today we come to the fourth in our series of messages on the Holy Spirit. And our goal has and always will be to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's exactly what it tells us in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. We are to grow in the knowledge of of Jesus Christ. Now, we know that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. In fact, He is God Himself. So by definition, our goal is to grow in the knowledge of God. Now, stay with me, because we learned very early in our series here on the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit is who? The Holy Spirit is God. He is the third member of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There are three gods, but there is only one God, and the Holy Spirit is God. They're all equal. So it makes sense that we would seek to learn all that we can about the Holy Spirit. Now, I just want to point out that a six-week sermon series will never cover all there is to know about the Holy Spirit. And if you remember, we said that all godly learning is a lifelong pursuit. You will never know it all about anything this side of heaven. However, Jesus has chosen to reveal much of the mysteries to us in his word. Now, over the past several weeks, we've seen several instances where Jesus promised the Holy Spirit. Last week, we saw that promise fulfilled. Remember in Acts chapter 2, we looked at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came and, and filled the disciples. 
They were filled, and they were able to do extraordinary things, things that they could not do on their own. The disciples were filled, and and we witnessed, really, was the birth of what? The birth of the church, right? It was the birth of the church of Jesus Christ. And we came to understand that the Holy Spirit is critical, is critical in building the church. So that is part of the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, today we want to continue to build on that knowledge and we want to continue to look very closely at the Holy Spirit at work. Now, to do that, I'm going to go back in time a little bit. We were at Pentecost last week. We're going to roll back a little bit to John chapter 16. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16... We're going to look at verses 4 through 14, because in that passage there, Jesus describes the work of the Holy Spirit, and he describes the work of the Holy Spirit in the world, and then he describes the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Now, if you remember, we've talked about this previously in John chapter 16 here, and, and this actually starts in John chapter 13 and goes through 17. Where's Jesus at? He's in the upper room, right? They just finished the Last Supper. He's in, he's in the upper room, and who is he with? Just his disciples, right? This is not happening in public. And what Jesus is doing is he's teaching. He's teaching, and he's preparing them for what lie ahead. In particular his death and resurrection, but he is also preparing them for his ascension. After he was raised from the dead, he spent 40 years on the earth, and then he ascended up to heaven. And Jesus is preparing them for that time. And actually, at the beginning of chapter 16, Jesus paints a pretty bleak picture of what that's going to look like. Because Jesus says, you know, you're going to be persecuted. You're going, to be, you're going to be shut out of the synagogues. You will be killed for the sake of the gospel. And he tells them this so that when it happens, they remember his instruction. And then at the end of verse 4, Jesus says this. I did not tell you this from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? So, at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, he called his disciples. He called his disciples and he told him to follow after him. But you know, he didn't spend a lot of time describing the persecution that they would one day face. Because, as he says right here, he was with them. He was there as the object of the hate. He was there as the object of the rejection and the persecution. But Jesus also knew that after he left, all of that hate and derision and persecution would be directed toward his followers. And he wouldn't be there. He wouldn't be there to bear the brunt. He wouldn't be there to protect them. But Jesus also knew 
that this was all part of the will of the Father. It was all part of the plan of redemption for a lost world. And if you're paying attention, it's kind of curious, isn't it, that Jesus says, none of you ask me where are you going? Because if, if you think about it, we looked at chapter 14, and didn't Thomas say something kind of similar to that? Didn't he say, hey, where are you going? He said, how do we know the way? That's really what Thomas said. And actually, if you look at chapter 13 in verse 36, Peter asked this very question, where are you going? So why does, Peter, why does Jesus say, you don't ask me, where are you going? See, there's a difference in the heart of the question. That's what Jesus is getting to here. See, the disciples' concern was with themselves. You know, what would happen to them after Jesus departed? The sense that Jesus speaks to here truly involves where are you going? In other words, what happens to you after you leave? But Jesus says, rather, in verse 6, you are filled with grief because I have said these things. But very truly, I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now again, the disciples are, are all caught up in the, what happens to them, right? Rather than what happens to Jesus. The way Jesus describes it, not only are they going to have to face incredible persecution, they're going to have to do it without their leader. They're going to have to do it without Jesus. And this was, this was really challenging for the disciples. I mean, they, they were concerned about how things affected them. And isn't that how we are? Don't we very often look at, at, at things that happen and, and think about how they affect us instead of how they might be affecting someone else? We are by nature selfish beings. That's what we see in the disciples here. They were occupied like themselves, with themselves, just like we are. They're wrapped up in their own little world. You know, the disciples, instead of, you know, a certain level of curiosity and maybe even kind of excitement about what's going to happen, they're filled with sorrow because they're occupied just with themselves, just like we would be. But Jesus tells them, it's for your good that I go. Other translations say it's to your advantage. And this is something that we've kind of talked a little bit about before and something that had to be very confusing for the disciples. I mean, how could this possibly be good? You know, with Jesus there with them, they had the advantage of hearing directly from Jesus. They could see him. They could see his face. They could see how he acted and how he reacted he was there with them, and, and, and they were able to witness him performing these incredible miracles. We could, he could see, they could see how, the, how he interacted with the people around him. Wouldn't that seem to be the advantage, to have Jesus there? And, and I, very often I hear people say, and I've even thought it myself, man, it would be great to walk with Jesus and to see all this stuff. But Jesus says, no. No, you don't understand. It's better that I go. Only then, only then 
can the Father send the Holy Spirit, our advocate, as the New International Version says here. I like the English Standard Version because it calls the Holy Spirit our helper or our helping presence. And then we see, starting in verse 8, Jesus goes on to describe the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. And friends, the Holy Spirit works in the world the same way today as it did way back then. So these words that we read here are relevant to the Holy Spirit working in the world today. This is what Jesus said. When He comes, He, there's that pronoun again, so again, the Holy Spirit is a person. It's not a thing or an aura or an energy. It says, when He comes, He will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So when you look at these, these verses here, at first blush, it, it would appear that the work of the Holy Spirit in the world is to prove the world wrong about three things, right? What? Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Other translations say the Holy Spirit has come to convict the world. You know, kind of like in a courtroom, you know, a prosecuting attorney come to convict the world. But I want us to think about this because we learned something in chapter 14 a couple of weeks ago where Jesus said, yeah, you know, the Holy Spirit is coming, but the world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. So how can the Holy Spirit come to a world that doesn't see Him and know Him and work in the world? Well, to answer that question, we have to go back a couple of verses to see that the Holy Spirit will come to you. Verse 7 says, unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So verse 8, yes, says when he comes, but the implication is when he comes to you. The Holy Spirit comes to the believer. The Holy Spirit comes and indwells the church. The Holy Spirit comes to you and to me. And when the Holy Spirit indwells us and the church and works in us as intended, the Holy Spirit will then prove the world wrong. It will convict the world through the church and through us as individuals. That's why Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. Not the Holy Spirit will be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses. In fact, just prior to this, at the end of John chapter 15, Jesus tells us, when the advocate comes, obviously that's the Holy Spirit, he will testify about me, and you also must testify. The English Standard Version says, he will bear witness about me, and you will this is in the imperative. This is not an option. This is not a maybe. You will bear witness also. So the Holy Spirit works through us 
in the world to bear witness to the truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because, as Jesus says here quite plainly, sin is what? It says it right here, sin is unbelief. Sin is the rejection of Jesus. And it is the job of the church and each one of us as individual followers of Christ to point the world to Jesus. The lives that we live reflect who He is. We talk about Jesus and the truth of who He is. He is God. He is the Savior of all who turn to Him. And when, when the world sees this in us, and when the world hears this from us and from the church, it will understand that the most basic of sin is not necessarily the evil things that they do. It is the fact that they do not believe in Jesus. That's sin. And the Holy Spirit is going to work through us to convict the world of that. Jesus also tells us that the Holy Spirit will convict the world about righteousness. Now, Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life, right? Jesus lived without sin. But he's not here anymore. He's ascended and taken his rightful place at the right hand of God the Father. Where do you suppose the world can see the righteousness of Christ at work? Any ideas? In us, right? And in the church. When the world looks at us and the church, it should see a different way of living. Imitating the righteousness of Christ. We are becoming more and more like Christ. Oh, I, I know I've heard that somewhere before. We've talked about this. It's that theology 101 word. It's the process of sanctification, right? Becoming more and more like Christ. Exhibiting more and more Christ-like characteristics. And sanctification is the work of who? The Holy Spirit. Are you starting to see the incredible importance of this third person of the Trinity? God the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will convict the world about righteousness through us, through the church. And then the third work of the Holy Spirit in the world, as Jesus tells us, is to prove the world to be wrong about judgment. Because, as Jesus tells us, the ruler of this world, which is who? Satan. Has been condemned already. And the Holy Spirit will bear witness to this, again, through the church and through each one of us as disciples. Friends, we know the day is coming when the philosophies of this world and the truth about Jesus Christ are going to collide. They're going to collide. It's called Judgment Day. That's coming. And when judgment comes, who's going to prevail? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And the evidence, friends, that Satan has been defeated already is found in us. It's found in his church. 
Because we live by a different standard. We live by a different system of morals. We show the world that Christians know how to love. We know how to love one another. We know how to care for one another. I know I've heard that before too. Those are two of the commands that Jesus gave his disciples in the upper room in chapter 13. Love one another. Care for one another. When we do that, when we show the world, we bear witness to the fact that, 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 that sin has died to, uh, to us. We're no longer consumed by that. We've died to ourselves and we are not consumed by worry. We're not consumed by the same things that the world is involved in. We're not, we don't have anxiety. We don't have those things that the world deals with. And granted, we don't do this perfectly. But when the world sees this growing in us, growing in the church, there's that process again. We bear witness to the fact that the power of sin is broken in our lives. And by this, the ruler of the world stands condemned. Now, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. But this happens only if we live in such a way that we bear witness to the truth. How do we do that? Well, actually, Jesus goes on in verse 12 and speaks to the work of the Holy Spirit in us. He says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me, and he will make known to you. So let's kind of break this down for a minute here. See, Jesus has, has laid a lot on the disciples to this point. He's really, he's really told them a lot. But he also says that he's not going to tell them anymore. He's gonna, not going to burden them with any more. Why? What is it they lack? The Holy Spirit, right? So the Holy Spirit is a prerequisite for learning. And for understanding more. And that is true for us. We need the Holy Spirit to continue to learn and to understand what Christ tells us. Because Jesus says here, when the Spirit comes, He will guide you into all truth. Specifically, the truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And clearly, clearly this was true for the apostles as evidenced by the writings of the New Testament. If you recall, it was the promised Holy Spirit that would bring to their remembrance all that Jesus said and did. And they recorded all of that. They recorded all of that for us. And they did that 
under the, the direction and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So it's true for the disciples, but friends, it is true for us today as well. The Holy Spirit is our guide. He's like our tour guide through life, if you will. He will show us the way. And, and Romans 8.14 tells us, Those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. We are God's children. Adopted as sons and daughters. We are led by the Spirit. In Galatians 5, Paul tells us to walk by the Spirit. In other words, let the Spirit guide you. We're going to talk more about walking by the Spirit next week, so you're going to have to come back. But it is the work of the Holy Spirit in us to guide us through life. And the Holy Spirit guides us through Scripture. God's Word is what? Anybody? Truth. God's Word is truth. You know, as Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, He prayed for disciples. He prayed for His disciples. And that includes certainly the men that were with Him that night. But He was praying for all disciples of all time, which includes who? Us, right? Jesus prayed for us in the Garden of Gethsemane before He was betrayed. In John chapter 17, Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them, oh, there's that word again, sanctify them by the truth, your word is truth. And it is the work of the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the truth found in God's word. The Holy Spirit will make the words of Scripture come alive. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Friends, this is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. The Holy Spirit will guide us through life. The Holy Spirit will guide us into the truth of God's word. One last thing I just want to mention really quickly is Jesus says that he'll, the Holy Spirit will tell you what's to come. Now that isn't to say that we're going to be able to see the future, right? So fortune tellers, I'm sorry, you're all wet. But in a sense, we can see the future because God gave us the book of Revelation, right? That's the other book, one of the other books that John wrote. And that is the revelation of what is to come, the revelation of the end times, that great and glorious day when Christ returns and gathers us up to him to spend eternity with him. That's our hope. That's our hope in this world and in the next. Are you starting to see why Jesus said it's better that he depart? It's to our advantage that he return to the Father? The, whole, the work of the Holy Spirit, friends, is nothing short of amazing. And why wouldn't it be? He's God. 
The Holy Spirit works in the world to prove the world wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment, yes, but he uses us to accomplish that. He works through us, and he works in us to guide us through life, to guide us into the truth of God's word. And friends, as we seek to share the truth about Jesus with Lowell and with Northwest Indiana and through the ministries that we support to the ends of the earth, I pray that the Holy Spirit would work through us and work in us mightily to see lives changed for Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just stand in awe of who you are. We stand in awe of the fact that you are God. And we thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit. Lord, we're, we're amazed at the work of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that you, would, that you would continue to pour your Spirit into your people. And that through us, through us, the world might be changed. Lord, that is what we seek, transformation. And we pray that as we, as, we, as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the world, we pray that you would pour your Holy Spirit out and work through us to open their eyes to the truth about you. Father, we love you, we praise you, and thank you. And we do this all in Jesus' name. Amen.